Thank you for tuning in to the Tulsa Bible Church Sermons Podcast. You're listening to Pastor Jared Verweel as he continues his series, Everything Over Nothing, in the book of Ecclesiastes. I hope you enjoy. Thanks, Sarge. And kids, you guys are dismissed to Children's Church this morning. Have fun down there. Eat some candy for me. Be thinking of you. If you have your Bibles, I hope you do turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 8. It'll be in Ecclesiastes 8, verse 10, through chapter 9, verse 10. Starting just a little bit. And, um, you know, just to give a little bit of a reprieve from all the all the social media and stuff, don't want to talk too much about it, but um, just want to let you know that Tulsa Bible Church is a place uh, that welcomes and embraces both sides of the aisle in terms of salvation in Christ. Uh, we believe that unity in Christ goes much deeper than affiliations to political parties and that every person on this planet is in desperate need for Jesus and righteousness in him. The other thing that we believe um, is that w- we have a, a hope that transcends hope in man and any, any governing authorities. Um, we hope and we trust ultimately in Christ. And so the world is watching to see how the church is gonna respond to this. And, uh, and I pray that we would all respond very well. Lesson number four in Ecclesiastes. Throughout church history, the orthodox teaching of the faith has always held to something that goes a little bit like this. Actions have consequences. Actions have consequences. God will judge, ultimately, the actions of all men. Listen to Job chapter 34, verse 11. For according to a man's deeds, he, speaking of God, repays him. According to a man's ways, he brings consequences. And this is just one verse that reflects uh, a constant and a strong theme throughout the Old Testament. Psalm 62, verse 12, at the end, for you will repay each man according to his deeds, speaking of God. Jeremiah, chapter 17, is a great chapter on not trusting in man, but ultimately trusting and putting our greatest hope in God alone. And it says, I, the Lord, search the heart. I examine the mind to reward a man according to his way, by what his deeds deserve. And aside from the Old Testament, the New Testament continues to affirm the fact of Christ's perfect judgment and God's evaluation of man's deeds. Listen to Romans chapter two, verse six. He will render to each one according to his work. Colossians chapter three, verse 25, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Not too long ago, I I mentioned in talking about the judgment of God, the the great and the universal Nicene Creed that Orthodox evangelicals have, have believed in the truths that transcend a lot of denominational lines. 
And that creed, of course, is, is divided and, and structured according to the Trinity. It talks about God the Father as creator, Jesus the Son, and then the Holy Spirit. And at the end of the part that addresses Jesus and his ministry, it says, he will come again with glory to judge the living and the, de- and the dead. And his kingdom will never end. Westminster Confession of Faith, and, and I'm not a super strong Calvinist here, but Westminster is one of those statements that has been called the greatest statement of God that has ever been penned by man. And so we can go to it for a lot of our our theology and at least converse with it. And it says this, God has appointed a day wherein he will judge the world in righteousness by Jesus Christ, to whom all power and judgment is given of the Father. In which day? Not only the apostate angels shall be judged, but likewise all persons that have lived upon the earth shall appear before the tribunal of Christ to give an account of their thoughts, their words, their deeds, and to receive according to what they have done in the body, whether good or evil. Now, most people will listen to those verses and even those theological statements, and this is one of the reasons why they cannot believe in Christianity. Seriously? You really believe in a primitive thought of a judgment day? That everybody at the end of all time is going to stand before an an almighty, all-knowing judge? If that's really true, then why why isn't justice being a little bit more uh, clearly doled out in our day today? Why do innocent people suffer? Why is this this judge allowing the things to happen and and for people to continue to die and and bad things that happen to good people every single day. And they have their reasons for dismissing this idea of a judgment day or that actions have consequences. Uh, First, it started during the Enlightenment. It It was called the Great Enlightenment because it was supposed to be the enlightening of man from the darkness of their ignorance in the past, but really what it was was a great darkening to the truth of God. And during the Enlightenment, we witnessed the rise of one of the greatest worldviews and philosophies that has been embraced and is still embraced in universities and society's institutions today called naturalism. And naturalism has a foundational premise. It believes that prime reality is matter. Matter exists eternally and is all there is that exists eternally, therefore God does not exist. Now, par excellence, a a great spokesperson for the naturalist perspective was a French philosopher by the name of Demetri. He wrote a very famous work, depending on how you interpret it or translate it, it's either called Machine Man or Man a Machine. And I wanna read this quote for you. This is uh, just one spokesperson for a naturalist philosophy that people even recognize today. He says, I recognize only science as judges of the conclusions which I draw, right? Only, I just listen to the facts. Science is what I'm gonna go to, and I hereby challenge every prejudiced man who is not an anatomist or acquainted with only philosophy which is to the purpose that of the human body. Again, such a strong and old oak, what could the weak reeds of theology, metaphysics, and scholasticism avail? They are all childish weapons, Lemaitre says. Like our foils, which may well afford the pleasure of fencing, but can never wound the adversary. For philosophers and for scientists, 
of our day, it is foolish not to believe that science has the perfect answers and naturalism is the, the system of belief that is beyond everything else that's out there. In fact, if you're not a naturalist, Lemaitre would say, you are part of the unsophisticated and uneducated portion of this population in our world in which we live. To dismiss naturalism is to entertain myths, is to remain a child, not progress further into modern thought that is more advanced. Naturalism taught that the world is all there is and the world is all that there will ever be. They reject the supernatural, they reject the miraculous, and they reject life after death at every cost. A non-theistic version of naturalism was Darwin, and Darwin won the day. Still evident in the temporary hopes of vaccines and, and socialism, even leading to a Marxism that was rooted in a deeply saturated naturalism. Of course, Christianity taught and teaches that an infinite personal God not only created the universe, but also sustains the world and everything in it. Moreover, God's creation and his design for the universe is teleological. It's a big fancy word that just means that there's an end to it, there's a purpose. History is not cyclical, it's actually linear. And God's design for history is going somewhere. There's an ultimate end, a God-glorifying end in which man is a redemptive man, is set free from sin and death and a part of that God-glorifying historical plan of redemption. But the traditional naturalists, for traditional naturalists, the world has no goal, it has no purpose, and there is no justified end to which it is moving toward. The great naturalist ideas like the theory of evolution end up raising as many questions as they propose to answer. While a theory of evolution, for instance, might give uh, a, a reason or at least a means of what happened to bring us here, it definitely does not answer the deeper and more foundational questions of why and for what purpose are we brought to here. The notion of an eternal purpose is, is neglected not only by a, a theory of evolution, but also, more foundationally, by the naturalist itself. Listen to Jacques Monod. He simply said that humanity's number came up in a Monte Carlo game, which is a game of pure chance. Or the famous Richard Dawkins. Natural selection is the blind watchmaker. Blind because it does not see ahead, it does not plan consequences, and it has no purpose in view. And so, most naturalists are happy to end with what they believe about world, the world and about science, and go absolutely no further. The universe is a closed system operating on its own, and we're all a part of that closed system. But for some, their reason and their logic gets the best of them, and they have to pursue that a little bit further. To those who applied reason to results, the naturalist philosophy had to go at least one step past that. The notion of death as extinction was too psychologically disturbing for many. There has to be more than just we're here one day and we're gone the next day, so you might as well eat, drink, and be merry. And therein lies the problem, not only for the naturalist, but also for the philosopher who came after him. Because if science and naturalism cannot substantiate life after death, then there is no life after death. 
Ultimately, that means the death of man, the death of God, a teacher by the name of Nietzsche, and a philosophy by the name of nihilism. Naturalism set the table for nihilism. Nietzsche would never have arrived where he was if it wasn't for the great science and, and the reason of the Enlightenment that came to dominate his day. Both taught naturalism and nihilism, that the world is a closed system, and its activity can only be governed by the activities that happen within it. There is no forces outside of this world guiding and directing humanity. There is nothing outside of that which is natural that impacts anything that happens. In other words, events occur today because of events that occurred before them and other events that occurred before them. All of life is just one big domino effect. One falls that leads to another decision that leads to another decision and ultimately brings us to where we are today, but there is no other reason than that. And this is where it gets really fun in terms of actions and consequences for the nihilist. If I stormed the Capitol, if I rioted a business, if I even killed somebody, it was ultimately due to inexorable circumstances that triggered my decisions from my past. It wasn't my fault, it was my parents' fault. It was the generations that led to the decisions that came to be made that single day. And so you really can't blame me for the things that I do. You have to blame the systems of oppression that have existed for hundreds and hundreds of years. The decisions that I had no control over, therefore I cannot be held responsible for them in a closed system. Ultimately, the naturalist and the nihilist can pass the proverbial buck. What's very interesting is that thousands of years before naturalism was ever a philosophy invented by man, and before nihilism ever came, uh, came abroad through the likes of, of Nietzsche, Solomon addressed the very same thoughts, and he brings them to the truth of Scripture so he can wrestle with them. Again, we're saying in our book of Ecclesiastes in this study, we are seeing a relevant topic in an idea that is so not only modern, but applicable for our lives today. <clears throat> this morning, we're continuing our sermon series through Ecclesiastes, and I want to add another one of Solomon's and the Kohelet's, the preacher's, life lessons. Life lesson number four is this. You are responsible for your actions. Everybody is responsible for their actions. And actions have consequences. But, number one, number one in your outline, those consequences aren't always immediately before us. Consequences are not always immediate. Look at Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse 10. Ecclesiastes 8, verse 10. The preacher writes here, Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. Now, verse 10, again, is extremely hard to interpret. In fact, it is probably one of the hardest verses to interpret in all of the book of Ecclesiastes. The preacher, at the very least, we're going to say this. He is connecting vanity to what's happening to the wicked at the beginning of this verse. 
And it hinges, our understanding of verse 10 all hinges on the interpretation of one verb, ESV. The wicked, they used to go in and out and they were praised. Some of your translations won't say praised. Some of them will actually say forgotten instead. Those translations that use the verb praised, it's probably closer to what the Hebrew actually says. They try to smooth that out a little bit. And the ones who are praised are actually the righteous in this context. And so there's a comparison between the righteous and the wicked. Some verse 10s are a lot longer than other verse 10s in your translations. Other translations that use forgotten, they go in and out of the holy place and were forgotten as if that is a bad thing in the context. And so you've got to just wrestle with this a little bit. I like how Longman brings clarity to this verse because wherever you land on this, this is going to be a text-critical problem on the verb. Is it praised? Is it forgotten? We don't really know. But wherever you land on this verse, Kohelet seems to be saying this, and I think it's solid. He says, The wicked may indeed die, but even they are buried and praised in the cities that they did their evil deeds, which is religious posturing. All right, let me read that again. The wicked may indeed die, but even they are buried and praised in the cities that they did their evil deeds, which is religious posturing. And so at the outset here, the preacher is combining praise to the wicked in this life, and that's not fair. That is a vanity of vanities, and it doesn't make sense. When, uh, when Martin Luther King, we're coming up to uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Day here in January. When Martin Luther King Jr. wrote his letters from a Birmingham jail, he had a line in there that has become famous in terms of justice, and it goes something like this. Justice too long de delayed is justice denied. Justice too long delayed is ultimately justice denied. Now I want you to look down at verse 11, chapter 8. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. At my uh, graduation from DTS, Dennis Rainey was the commencement speaker. I will never forget what he said to everybody that graduated that year. It was 2011, May, and it went something like this. Sin would have much fewer takers if its consequences occurred immediately. Sin would have much fewer takers if its consequences occurred immediately. Kohelet is bringing out the great truth that sometimes they don't. Therefore, the wicked and the evil find pleasure in doing what they did because they think they're getting away with it, scot-free. And actions don't always, consequences don't always immediately follow actions. Look at uh, uh, verse 12, read through verse 15. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, Yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God, because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow, because he does not fear before God. There is a vanity that takes place on earth. There are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. 
There are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. And I said that this also is vanity. And I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat, drink, and be joyful, for this will go with him and his toil through the days of his life that God has given to him under the sun. Now, Kohelet seems to be contradicting himself, especially right at the beginning of these verses. Uh, it's really hard to explain it. Do, do the wicked have short lives because of their evil and, and God giving them retribution for those evil things, or do they live long lives and seemingly are, are just sinning and it makes no difference whatsoever? If there's any place in the text, it's, it's very confusing, if there's any place in the text where the preacher disavows a philosophy akin to naturalism and to nihilism that we opened up with, it is verses 12 and 13. Verse 12 and 13, the preacher says very matter-of-factly, a sinner often lives a long life, and that is vanity. Sometimes a sinner's life is cut short, and that's just. In other words, sometimes prosperity and long life is not indicative of godliness. Sometimes evil people live longer than righteous people, and sometimes righteous people live longer lives. We just don't know. This is a fallen world, and so we're not going to see perfect retribution for God living in this fallen world. This and in several other verses in Ecclesiastes is one place where I would go to absolutely refute the prosperity gospel that is so often proclaimed, not only in, across America, but in Tulsa, Oklahoma, right? Because if you are sowing seeds of faith and if you are living a righteous life, then you are bound to be blessed by God. You are forcing his hand, and you are going to enjoy long life and prosperity every single time, and you're going to be healed, right? That's not what Solomon says, and that's not what the preacher says. Sometimes, in fact, it's the exact opposite of those things. A naturalist will say the same thing a skeptic says. Fearing God is not worth it. Look around. If God truly existed, why would these things continue to happen in a fallen world, right? Wrong. Don't be fooled. Consequences for sin are not always immediate. People do not automatically get what they deserve in a fallen world but will, it will always be well with those who fear God. In three times, Kohelet uses this phrase, fear God, fear God, fear God. The preacher describes a lifestyle that is pleasing to God as one that fears him more than they fear anything else. And so we would say that fearing God pays an eternal currency, not a temporary one. Fearing God reflects a heart focused on eternal perspectives instead of temporary perspectives. Consequences don't always occur immediately, but we fear God regardless. Number two, one consequence is always ultimate. Consequences are not always immediate, but there is one consequence that is always ultimate. Look down at chapter 9, verse 1. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise, their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. Verse 2. It is the same for all, 
since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices, to him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner. And as he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun. That the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their heart while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. Take hope and be encouraged this morning. Before Solomon gets to the great equalizer of death, the same fate that awaits everybody, he starts with the fact of God's sovereignty. And I think this is so important to get this. In verse 1, contrary to what some people believe, we are not the masters of our fate. We do not control the situations in our life. The righteous and the wise are in the hand of God. People and what they do are under the sovereign will of God. Proverbs 21 verse 1 says this, The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord like channels of water. He turns it wherever he wants. God's sovereignty must never be ignored in human choices and the events that transpire in our world and throughout history. Then, in verse 2, the the preacher gives the ultimate statistic, right? Ten out of ten people are going to meet the same fate. A hundred percent of the people in this room are going to die. It doesn't matter how good you are. It doesn't matter how bad you are. The same fate awaits you. And notice the five comparisons that he gives in verse 2. Whether you are righteous or you are wicked, you are going to die. Whether you are good or evil, you are going to physically die, clean or unclean. Kohelet mentions the, in a religious context here. Ceremonial, whether you are clean or unclean, you are going to die. Whether you are religious, a churchgoer, or not religious, you are going to die. Whether you make oaths or shun oaths, the same fate awaits you. All will face the ultimate consequence of sin, and that is death. Paul would say it this way, the wages of sin is death. Because all of us have sinned, all of us die, and all of us will go to the grave. This is why Solomon tells us to go to funerals more than you go to parties. Because that is the end of every man, and the living take it to heart just mention a note here, uh, what you're going to find in Ecclesiastes is not a complete biblical theology of death. The Bible has so much more to say about death than this. In fact, in the Old Testament, largely, death is a great mystery. It's an oblivion. Death is depicted by Sheol as a, as a place of gaping jaws. It's the, the place that people went to that nobody really knew about. And nobody knew what was going to happen after that. And even though the the theology of death is limited in the Old Testament, it gets fully explained in the New Testament. Death is a consequence. It's a consequence we all face because we all sin. Even though there's a physical death, the Bible also talks about spiritual death. And it's the spiritual death that we should be more worried about in this life than that which is physical Apart from God, not only do you have one foot in the grave, but you are also eternally and spiritually separated from him. Spiritual life transcends physical life. Spiritual death transcends physical death. 
Spiritual life overcomes physical death. Life that is given in Christ is something that is granted to us as a gift. Although the wages of sin is death, the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Ecclesiastes begs us to think about what will happen when we physically die. And it drives us to the important question of spiritual life and spiritual death. And so here's where we start. Lesson number four. Consequences are not always immediate, number one. But there is one consequence that is always ultimate, and that is the consequence of physical death because of sin. Number three this morning. Let the day of your death inform the day of your life. I would put it this way. Live life backwards. Knowing that you will die physically should inform the way that you live temporarily. And all your decisions, your posture, your heart's affections will be changed knowing that this life is temporary and on the other side of it is eternity. Let the day of your death inform the day of your life. Look down at verse four. Ecclesiastes 9, verse 4. But he who is joined with all of the living has hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. They have no more reward for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Verse 7, go. Eat your bread with joy, drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved of what you do. Let your garments always be white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love. All the days of your vain life, that's a really bad translation. You should say all the, vain, all the days of your temporary life or your fleeting life. That he has given to you under the sun because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. If it is true that death is coming for all of us, if it's true that ten of, out of ten of us will ultimately die, enjoy life while you got it. It is a gift from God. Go, eat good food, drink good wine, and you have to understand verse 7 in its context before you, you know, just take this completely out and, and explain it in ways that God didn't intend. For God has already approved of what you do. In the context there, that's speaking specifically of the righteous man, not the fool. God does not approve of sin. He cannot approve of sin from other verses that we have in Scripture. Go and enjoy life as opposed to the garments of a mourner who would wear dark clothing and sackcloth, put on fine clothing and, wine and white linens. Make your appearance joyful. Turn your heart to joy. Celebrate the oil of gladness. The entire world will spend billions and billions of dollars pursuing every fleeting pleasure. Pursue the pleasures that God tells you to pursue. Enjoy the gifts that God has given you to enjoy. Solomon says, embrace it. You're going to die. You have sinned. 
live your life in light of that. Knowing that you are going to, ju- to die tomorrow should change the way that you live today. And again, live life backwards. A couple things I want to close with as we, uh, as we turn the page here and, and finish up in uh, this life lesson, right? Actions have consequences. Sometimes those consequences don't occur immediately, but you are responsible for your actions. And you and you alone will have to answer before God for the things that you have done, whether they are pleasing to the Lord or displeasing to the Lord. Number one, the consequences of sin are more disastrous than we know. The consequences of our sin are more disastrous than we realize. Actions have consequences, all of us will be judged, nobody gets a free pass, no one is off the hook before God. Hebrews 9, verse 27, all people are appointed to die once, then comes the judgment. And for the believer, we have a different judgment than the unbeliever. The believer is judged at what is called the judgment seat of Christ, and we will be judged by God. We will give an account of our life to him, not in terms of of deserving eternal life with him, but in terms of did did our lives reflect what was pleasing to him? Rewards in eternity. The judgment seat of Christ, nobody will be condemned to separation from God forever. Everybody has unity in a relationship with God forever. Instead, the judgment seat of Christ is a, is a judgment of rewards for a faithful life that is lived on this earth. Some people, their works will be shown to be pure when they are tested by the fire of God's judgment. Other people, their works will burn up like wood, hay, and straw. We read about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 2 Corinthians 5.10. The judgment seat of Christ is, is a judgment for believers only. But the judgment for unbelievers is the one that's at the end of Revelation. It's called the great white throne judgment. And it's there that everyone will be judged according to their works. And none of their works were good enough to earn everlasting life with God. In fact, all of them will be judged and found guilty and thrown into the, fiery, into the lake of fire that burns forever. The judgment seat of Christ is the, ju- is the judgment that you want because of your right relationship with Christ. The great white throne judgment is the judgment that you don't want that leads to eternal separation from from God. Sin will always attempt to convince you, always, that it is much smaller and less threatening than it really is. The consequences of sin are more disastrous than you can ever know. Genesis chapter four says sin is crouching at the door It is a predator. Its power and its consequences will sneak up on you, but they are there. Sin is like Rambo in the jungle. He will find you, and he will enact retribution. Sin always, almost always convinces you that you can get as close you want to the line of sin as long as you don't cross over it. And that consequence, when you start to deal with sin in those terms, will be devastating, not only for your earthly life, but also for your eternal one. But the power of life in Christ is stronger than anything that we could ever hope for. The consequences of sin are more disastrous than we could ever know. But the power of life in Christ is stronger 
than we could ever hope for. In a nutshell, this is the gospel in Ecclesiastes. Jesus was the only one who didn't deserve a consequence for sin. Jesus lived a perfect life. He never sinned. Therefore, he didn't deserve death. He willingly laid down his life and he gave it to us that we might be redeemed. He gave a perfect life for us that didn't deserve consequences so that we who don't live perfect lives and do deserve consequences can have hope and everlasting life. It is through the life of Christ that we can have the greatest hope of living with God, not because of what we do, but because of what he has done for us. He took his life for us that we might have life that we didn't deserve. He laid down his life that we might be able to pick up ours through him and have an eternal relationship with the Father. I don't know why I have to say this, but in a modern, postmodern world, I do. Listen carefully. You are responsible for your actions, and nobody else is. You're not going to be able to pass the buck on your past, on your parents, on your family, on where you grew up, on where you live. You are responsible. And your actions have consequences. Because of the gospel, the greatest consequence that we would ever face is the consequence for sin, which led to not only physical death, but will lead to spiritual death. We don't have to face that consequence because of what Christ did for us if we simply trust in him and his death on the cross for us. Folks, this is the one get-out-of-jail-free card that you must pick up. This is the one action, the one consequence that you must face is because you are a sinner, you are going to die, physically and spiritually. But if you are united to Christ, that consequence is null and void because of what he has done for us on the cross. If you don't hear anything else today, hear this. Everybody will stand before a perfect judge, and everybody will be found guilty because of sin. But in Christ, we can have life, and eternal life with him forever. And he gives it to us because of Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, um, we thank you so much for the truth of your word. We thank you that we can, we can gather together and we can worship you as our hope. We can put our trust in you more than we trust anything, more than we trust men, more than we trust finances, more than we trust health. Lord, all of these things are passing away, but you are eternal. Father, I pray that our minds would be set on an eternal perspective this year in, in 2021. Guide us to the freedom and the hope that comes through Christ and the only hope that ultimately leads to satisfaction. Help us to find our lives, actions, thoughts, everything about us caught up and directed by the mind of Christ and the life of Christ. Help us to glorify him and to think of him more than we think of anything else. Help us to find our joy and our comfort in what he has done for us and the truth of the gospel more than it is found in anything that this world can offer. In 2021, make us a church that is loving 
that is hopeful, and most of all, that believes solely in you and prioritizes a life with you as the most important thing that we can ever do. We thank you for the truth of the gospel. We thank you for Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. You guys have a wonderful Sunday. Uh, we'll see you next time.